Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 in a moment. Acts 17, 1 through 10. So today is Father's Day, and again, in case I missed you earlier, happy Father's Day. We're glad you're here with us on this day. And Father's Day is a day to reflect and to think about our relationship with our earthly fathers. And I'm reminded of a time uh, that really, I guess, has more to say with who I was as a son rather than necessarily who my dad was, and yet it is certainly a story that involves him. So my father liked to do uh, do-it-yourself projects, whether it was automotive work or household improvement, we tended to do it ourselves. And on one occasion, I was helping my dad, and I enjoyed that. It's a fond memory I have working with my father on these various projects and learning from him and from his father before him. Well, on this particular occasion, I, I asked for some help, and as it was being explained to me what I was doing wrong, it became obvious that it was something really very simple. And I was embarrassed that I had to ask for help. But rather than than admit, oh, I see, yeah, duh, I decided to dig in and to begin to come up with arguments for why it couldn't be that simple. It can't be that easy. My pride, my inability to admit that I had just missed it, forced me to dig in my heels and entrench myself in a foolish and wrong position. Of course, it's reasons like this why we have a day set aside for fathers. So thank you, fathers, for your patience with sons like me. It's interesting, I've seen that same behavior as a teacher. I will have students who, who it's obvious, are just arguing the point, just saying they don't understand, not because they don't understand, but because in their pride they can't admit that they now understand it, and, oh, yeah, duh, I probably should have gotten it earlier. Well, that is similar to what we're going to see in the book, uh, in, in the city of Thessalonica today as we consider Acts 17. You know, Paul wrote the book of Romans just a, uh, a few years, probably about five years after he visited uh, Thessalonica, the passage we're about to look at. And in his opening to the book of Romans, Paul describes an interesting phenomenon in human behavior. So before I read what happened in, Thessalon- in Thessalonica with the Thessalonians, let me read actually Paul's description from Romans 1. I'm going to begin in verse 18. Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Because by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. As Paul writes his letter to the Romans, he describes almost a a willful defiance of the truth, a willful uh, 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 refusal to accept what is plainly set before us. It reminds me of that childhood experience, that do-it-yourself project with my father. The truth was right there, it was plain, it was obvious, and I refused to admit to it. 
because I dug in in my pride. I wonder if Paul had his encounter with the Thessalonians in mind when he wrote to the Romans. You know, here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, I I often remind us that we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. But this morning, I, I want to turn that on its head, and I want to say this. The Bible is also the only infallible guide for understanding non-faith and failure to practice. It not only tells us what to believe and how to live, it also tells us why we don't believe and don't live the way we ought to. So if you really want to understand human nature, if you really want to understand the way we dig ourselves in in our pride, then you have to know God's word. Hear now the word of God from uh, 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 Acts 17, verses 1 through 10. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Let's pray. Lord, we need to hear your word today, but I do not pray for biological function, for uh, uh, anatomical, physiological uh, well-being. I don't pray for our eardrums or our auditory nerves. Brother Lord, I, I pray for our hearts, that we would not just hear the truth, but that we would receive it, that we would hear with our inner being, that we would hear with our minds and our hearts, that they might be changed by your word. Let us not be like so many in uh, Thessalonica who refused to acknowledge the truth, but let us be broken before your word and come to you humbly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to consider four ways that we human beings uh, defy and deny and reject the Word of God. Four ways that are laid out here in this text in which we don't hear the very things we have listened to. Where we don't accept the truth that is plainly in front of us. 
What we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through the events that occurred as Paul and Silas, and we find out later, well, Timothy's not mentioned here, we find out in the next section, he's still with them. When Paul and Silas and Timothy come to the city of Thessalonica, modern-day Thessaloniki in northern Greece, um, when they come there, we're going to look at what unfolds, and we're going to stop at different points and consider four ways that we deny the truth of God. So first of all, a little bit about this city, Thessalonica. Uh, It it was the capital city of the region of Macedon, uh, Macedonia, uh, uh, back then. Uh, um, A little different than we saw Philippi, an important city. This is the capital city and the largest city in the the region. A little difference in status. Remember we heard about Philippi a couple of weeks ago, that it was a colony city that it had the, the, the laws of Rome. It was like Rome in another place. Well, Thessalonica was different. It was a free city, not conquered, not technically under Rome's jurisdiction. But because of its historic role in the, uh, the, uh, uh, some of the earlier battles and earlier Caesar had granted them the status of a free city. Now, at first glance, first blush, that sounds great. Isn't that wonderful to be a free city back then when Rome had conquered all of the world? You're left free. Yeah, they're free a bit like Hong Kong is free today. Because when you are trapped in a cage with an 800-pound gorilla, the only freedom you have is to keep handing out the bananas. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. The city had to to, uh, uh, give Rome whatever Rome wanted. They had to make sure they, they pleased Rome at every turn. In some ways, they had more obligation to to appease Caesar and Rome than many of the colony cities had, precisely so they could maintain this facade of freedom. And we're going to see that that plays out here in a moment. Now, what happens? So this city they come to, what's going on here? Well, uh, um, so uh, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they, they pick up, they leave Philippi. There are two intermediate cities mentioned, Amphipolis and, 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 Amphipolis and uh, not Annapolis, what is it? <laughs> they didn't travel to Annapolis as much as we might have liked that. Uh, Apollo, Apollonia. Um, <clears throat> and uh, most scholars say that because there are two cities mentioned, there probably were two stopover points. And if there were only two stopover points, then we're looking at a three-day journey, three days, two nights, which means they were traveling by horse or mule. Interesting little fact. It would have taken about five days to walk that distance. So they travel by horse or by mule. They come to this city. And there's something interesting that you notice how it, it, it says they, they went to Thessalonica. And it implies because there was a synagogue there. It's almost like they didn't stay in those other two cities because there wasn't a, a synagogue. And we've seen that this is now Paul's pattern. And in fact, the Luke says right here, he goes into the synagogue as was his custom. Okay? So he gets to, to Thessalonica. And, and, and Luke doesn't tell us this. But when Paul uh, writes to the Thessalonians, his letters to the Thessalonians come just a few months after this, these events. It's just a few, matter of fact, probably just a few weeks later that Paul's going to be down in the city of Corinth, and it's from Corinth that he writes back to the Thessalonians. And so we see it's just a, f- a few weeks or months later that Paul writes to the Thessalonians. And one of the things he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is that he and Silas uh, worked very, very hard. They worked diligently day and night to support themselves financially. So somewhere along the way, they get into town and they set up shop. They set up their tent-making business. Now, Luke doesn't include that here, but we, now we know it to be true from what Paul says in his letter back to this Thessalonian church. 
So it takes some time to get that up and running. Most scholars say it probably would have taken them at least a month to, to get together the supplies, to rent a space in the marketplace, to get everything they had to get going, to get it all up and going, probably at least a month. Now, whether, and he mentions that Paul taught three days, three Sabbaths. It's hard to know whether those were consecutive or following. Did he set up shop and then he started teaching in the, in the synagogue? We don't know. But there's, there, he all, we also see him entering the synagogue, as we've seen him do. Now, let's take a look at what Paul says in the synagogue. When he gets there, what does he talk about? Well, if we look here, we see something really interesting. First of all, uh, Luke tells us that, that uh, Paul took a look backwards. He looked at the past. He, he told them about Jesus. Notice the wording there and what we, uh, we see starting in, in verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. Paul reasoned with them, he explained to them, he proved to them, and they were persuaded. It is the language of, of logic and of reason, of, of sound debate, of debate rooted on the truth, and flowing out of the truth. And the syllogism that's there is basically this. Paul says, look at the scriptures. Look at my fellow Jews. What do the scriptures say? And he proves, from them the, proves to them from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now Luke kind of glosses over this next part, but the, we know from every other place where we see the, peach, the preaching of the apostles, what do they preach? They preach about the ministry, the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul basically makes the reasoned argument, this is what the Messiah would be like. He would suffer and die and rise again. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He lived out a perfect life. He suffered, he died, and he rose again. Therefore, he must be the Messiah. There is this reasoned argument. You know, that really brings us to the first point of our message. The, the first reason we tend to deny the truth. We reject reasoned arguments. We tend to reject rational thought. Oh, now, don't get me wrong. We should reject rationalism Rationalism says that everything is simply based on what we can figure out with our minds. Rationalism says only our thoughts determine what is true. That's not Christianity. Christianity says you start with revelation, not with your rationality. You start with the word of God, not your own thinking. But we must not reject rational thinking. For we see right here, that's how Paul ministers to the Thessalonians. And we're going to see it again in Berea, and we're going to see it again in Athens, and we're going to see it again in Corinth. This is how he ministered. But we live in a culture that is increasingly rejecting the idea of absolute objective truth that can be approached rationally. You know, if you ever catch yourself arguing, and you start the sentence with, well, I just You have just slipped from rational thought into subjective thought. 
you have transitioned from what is objectively true to what is subjectively true. I just think. In other words, what my opinion matters more than any argument you can make. It's amazing how often I catch myself slipping into that. I'm a guy who is trained at a pretty high level to think scientifically. Scientifically, we're supposed to start with the evidence and draw conclusions from it. We're supposed to be objective. And despite that training, I find myself saying things like, well, I just think. But that's not what Paul is doing here. He's making a case based on the facts. He's making a case based on historical truth. And when we refuse to do that, we are going to miss the plain truth that's right in front of us. This world today, we we talk a lot about our story. We just got to tell our story. Our social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or any of the others out there, often have a place for you to tell your story. Now, there's nothing wrong with our own personal story. But when we elevate it to the point where it becomes the standard of truth, that's a problem. That's subjective reality. That's saying that what is true depends on me and how I view it. That's blasphemy. For there is one who came to the earth and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when we say, well, no, there's not any objective, absolute truth out there, rather what I think is what matters, we've taken the place of the one who claimed to be the truth. And it is sin. And we've become uh, 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 emotionally driven. It's all about how I feel about the situation. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with emotions. And this is a problem. We've, as Presbyterians, we have to acknowledge this. This is a problem for our faith tradition, that we, have, we tend to do away with the emotion. There's a reason the rest of the Christian church calls us the frozen chosen. Because we've rejected any idea uh, that emotions play any role. So we've got to balance the two. It's not that we want to reject emotion. It's that we need to get the, the cart and the horse in the proper order. The facts, the rational, objective truth ought to drive us and our emotions follow. So that understanding the truth of what we have in Jesus Christ brings us joy. And so that we aren't driven by our emotions, but rather our emotions are an appropriate response to what God has done for us. Sometimes in our effort to focus on thinking and on logic and on doctrine, we have minimized the the role of emotions. The scriptures talk a great deal about emotions, but the emotions are in response. They ought not drive the situation. Rather, objective truth should drive the situation. You know, right now, there's a great deal of emotion. And it is a time when we can appeal to people. But let's be sure that we do not appeal to them on an emotional basis. For the, 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 the truth of the gospel is not a panacea for all emotional problems. 
Christians still have emotional failings. Just because we have the objective truth doesn't mean that our emotions are never run, never run astray. And yet, while people are emotionally stirred up because of what's going on in the world, it is a time to bring objective truth to them. There's an article in the paper this morning about the concerns that doctors have over uh, the mental health issues that are going to come out of what's going on in our country right now. Out of the COVID-19 situation and the, the, the social unrest that's happening, uh, uh, these things and the economic turmoil, these things are going to come together and create a great deal of, of mental health. And we can say, oh, Christians can swoop in there and Christianity will fix all mental health problems. That's an emotional appeal. What we do need to do is bring the objective truth to bear. You're worried about your future. As well you should be. Let me talk to you about the future that comes after this. And let me talk to you about how to shore that up. And as we begin to talk about the objective reality of a secure future in Jesus Christ... That does trickle down into our emotions. That does trickle down into our mental health. That does begin to help us out and play a key role in stabilizing the way we think about this world. Paul presents the gospel in a rational, reasoned way. What do we see in our New Testament reading this morning? Uh, you do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's appropriate there. And when we reject rational, objective truth, when we say, I don't want to hear that argument, I just think, we put at risk the very foundation of Christianity we see a second thing in these same verses, a second reason why some of us do not listen to the truth of Christianity. We see there this idea of preconceived notions. You notice what he had to explain and prove. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. You see, we have here this ongoing problem. Much of Jewish culture back then had come to the conclusion that the Messiah was going to be this uh, victorious warrior figure who was going to come in and throw off the Roman overlords and set everybody free economically, physically, militarily, politically, and it was going to be that kind of conquering hero. When we come to Christianity when we come to the Word of God with our preconceived notions, we are often going to miss the truth. When we come saying things like, well, I just think God would be like this. I was sitting in a class freshman year in college. Uh, 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 introduction to the Bible was the title of the class. And the professor was having a debate with one of my classmates. And in the midst of that, the professor was, was presenting uh, the concept of the fear of the Lord. My classmate said something along the lines of, well, I, can't, I just can't worship a God you have to fear. And my professor, thankfully, said to him, then you can't worship the true God. 
this student, and, 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 and the student came around eventually. <laughs> it ended well. <laughs> but this student had come with this preconceived notion that God ought to be a certain way. And as a result, was missing the truth of the scriptures. The Jews had come with this preconceived notion of what the Messiah must be like. And Paul had to explain to them, you've got a wrong understanding of the Messiah and who he is. In an interesting discussion with my daughter this week, um, she was interacting with a, another person and this, this uh, talking about Christianity and about her faith. And the other person uh, 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 apparently raised a question about, uh, related to the idea of you know, Christianity, why bother? Because God cannot be understood anyway. You can't understand God, so why enter into a relationship with him? Now, I, I don't know the other person. I don't want to say any more. I'm not... What comes next is not what this person said or did. I'm just telling you that's the launching point for my thinking here. It's interesting when we do that. We, I hear those sorts of arguments. This preconceived notion. God cannot be understood, therefore, why bother? And on one level we go, well, yeah, God cannot be understood. He, he's beyond us. He transcends us. He is unlike us in so many ways. But if we take that to its logical conclusion, then there's no point in any relationships with anybody ever at all. For which of us is going to dare say, I completely understand my wife? I've been living with her for almost 32 years. And yes, I understand her better than I used to, but I don't understand her completely. I have known my brother for 48 years. We're very similar in personality. I don't understand him completely. To come with this preconceived notion that we can't enter into a relationship with God because we can't fully understand him, is to do away with the possibility of any relationship with anyone ever because we can't fully understand them. They came with a preconceived notion about who the Messiah would be, what he would be like, and as a result, many of them could not receive the truth. So, Luke goes on to explain that Paul, having reasoned with them, was able to persuade some of them, and some of them believe. And it's interesting, Luke's point seems to be here that among those who believed, there was only a small number of Jews, quite a few number of God-fearing Gentiles, and how does it word it there, kind of a, that, that backdoor way of saying, not a few leading women, in other words, a whole lot of prominent women, came to faith. And we see uh, uh, the, the, the church being established with that group of people. And so the Gentiles now become leaders in this church here. But some object. We saw there, uh, 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 was it verse uh, 5? There we go. <clears throat> but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, uh, the uh, the, 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 that wicked men of the rabble, the, the literal translation, the literal uh, language that's behind it is uh, wicked men of the marketplace. You know, those, those ne'er-do-wells that just hang out in the market all the time. They've got nothing better to do than just hang out there and cause trouble. Remember when you, you know, go to the mall and you see those kids over there just hanging out in the mall. Uh, they can't be up to any, you know, no good whatsoever. What kind of trouble are they causing? That's what we're looking at here. Just these people just hang out at the mall. And the Jews go gather them up and they bring them to bear to, to attack Jason's house and to drag out, with the intent of dragging out Paul and Silas. <clears throat> well, you see what's going on here. One of the reasons they can't come to faith, one of the reasons they can't obey the word of God is pride. 
It says they become jealous. What are they jealous of? Well, they're jealous of the fact that their position is now being counted as wrong, and many are going over to another position. They're jealous of the fact that where they had a leading role in saying what the faith of the Jews ought to be like, this outsider Paul has come in and said, here's the true faith of the Jews. The Messiah has come. You should believe and receive him. And they cannot accept that they need to change their path. They need to change their way. They need to go down a different road. And they become jealous, and they defend their status quo. They accuse Paul and Silas and the other believers. They, take, they drag them into the, uh, before the city officials, and they accuse them of turning the world upside down. This is not the good thing that it might sound like. You know, some of us might go, oh, yes, Christians, we need to go out there and turn the world upside down. Well, that's not, this is more akin to turning up a, a glass of orange juice upside down. Makes a sticky mess, and nobody's happy about it. Okay? That's kind of the picture here. They turn the world upside down, and they say there's another king, Jesus. Now, the accusers have said there that this is a, they, they, they're speaking in opposition to the decrees of Caesar. What's going on there? Well, Caesar, uh, uh, not the Caesar on the throne here, but one of the earlier Caesars, had made a law forbidding astrologers and fortune tellers making any predictions about the transition of the empire. They were not allowed to make predictions. They weren't allowed to look at the phases of the moon or the position of the stars or anything else and say, this emperor is going to die on such and such a date, and his third son will take the throne, or this general will take the throne. They were not supposed to make those sorts of predictions. You say, well, how is that the, the accusation against Paul and Silas? Well, again, when we look at his letter to the Thessalonians, what do we see as a major content of the books of Thessalonians? Well, we see Paul writing to them, when I was with you, did I not say to you? And then he goes on to explain future events, the second coming. Much of what we know about the second coming comes from the books of Thessalonians. So Paul had openly talked about the fact that there would come a day when Jesus would return. And when he returned, the whole earth would know it. And all of the false rulers and false teachers and, and, and false doctrine of this world would, would fall away and the truth would become known. Paul had dared to say that there would be a future day when Rome would not rule the world. And for that... He is being accused. For that, he is saying he is defying uh, 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 Caesar. But what's really interesting here is who's bringing the accusation. It's the Jews who are bringing the accusation. We see the irony here, the same irony we saw at the trial of Jesus. You remember how that works? The, the, why are they upset at Jesus? Why are they rejecting Jesus here? Because he is supposed to be this, this political military deliverer. The Messiah is supposed to set us free from Rome. Set us free from Caesar. The Jews are not lovers of Caesar. They are not defenders of Rome. They are not uh, happy about the Pax Romana. Despite the fact that there is peace on the earth, they don't want it. They want their freedom. 
And here they are, ironically, charging somebody else with sedition. Charging somebody else with doing what was wrong before Caesar. You see, this is another way that we reject the truth. We seek false justification. We hide behind false claims of righteousness. Look at us, Roman leaders. Look at us, leaders of Thessalonica. We're, we're standing up for Caesar. We're on the right side of the law. We're bringing to you these who are undermining Caesar. When in fact, they wanted no part of Caesar's rule over them. We have a tendency to reject rational, concrete, logical arguments that lead to a, a, an obvious truth. We have a tendency to, to uh, 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 come to the Word of God and, to, and to, the, uh, to the God of the Bible with preconceived notions about what He ought to be like. We have a tendency to let our pride get in the way. We can't change direction. We can't go in a new way. We can't submit to the Word of God because of our jealousy for our own uh, position and status. And we have a tendency to create all these false reasons and false justifications. The text closes out with the authorities taking a security deposit. Basically, the idea is this. They can't find Paul and Silas. The authorities here realize that you're, you're bringing an accusation against Paul and Silas. You're talking about people who've gone all over the world, upsetting the whole world, but Jason and the others, they've lived their whole lives right here in Thessalonica. We know they're not the ones. You can't find Paul and Silas. You're accusing Jason of having uh, uh, helped them out, of aided and abetted. So here's what we're going to do. Jason, the rest of you guys, put up some money, put up a security deposit, enough to cover the cost if there's another... Uh, 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 uprising in the marketplace, if there's another scandal, if there's another riot, we're going to use your money to pay for it. But if all turns out well, we'll give you your money back. Basically, you've got to get these guys out of town. And we see that happening. The brothers send them on their way to Berea. You know, Acts 17, the opening of Acts 17, feels a little bit like a ditto. It feels like the same thing we've seen a dozen times over in the book of Acts in a dozen different cities before this. And yet what we see is Luke presenting it to us as a picture of who we are in our sinfulness, in our humanity, in our pride. How we dig in and refuse to hear the truth. And he writes to Theophilus to say, don't be like this. And the church has kept this and the Spirit brings it down to us today to say, don't be like this. Don't reject objective, rational arguments. Don't start with your emotions and try to draw some conclusion from there. Start with the Word of God. Build a reasonable, explainable, uh, 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 doctrine-based argument on that. And then from there, let the joy of the Word of God spill out. Paul, uh, Luke writes here saying, don't, don't come with your preconceived notions. Let the Bible tell you what the Messiah is like. Let the Bible dictate what you understand about him and how you ought to live in light of what he's done. Don't let your jealousy, your pride for self, if I take that to be true, then I've got to admit that what I was doing before was wrong. And jealous, I'm jealous for myself. 
I'm jealous for my appearance and the way things look about me. And so I can't change directions. And don't let false justification be part of what keeps you from the truth. You know, when I was the headmaster at the Christian school, it was an interesting phenomenon. People would decide to pull their student out of our school for for whatever reason, sometimes financial, they couldn't afford the tuition any longer, sometimes uh, philosophical differences, sometimes uh, we didn't have what their student needed, whatever the reason. But there was this fraction of parents who couldn't just pull their student. Rather, they had to first spend a couple of months bad-mouthing the school, running it down, talking about how terrible the teachers were, how horrible the school was, so that when they finally did pull their student, they felt justified in doing it. That's kind of the picture we've got going on here, this false justification, making up all these reasons for why I can't accept what the Word of God says. Final analysis, we've got to fall before the Word of God. We've got to kneel before it, and we've got to say, as a believer, we've got to say to to, to the Spirit of God, don't let these things be at work in me. Don't let me be hardened in my heart in these ways. I see what you have said about the Thessalonians, and I don't want to be like that. And to the unbeliever who might be hearing this message and whom you might have a conversation, we need to constantly challenge them. Stop raising up all of these unfounded, unreasonable, unjustified objections And just humble yourself before the Word of God. You know, two of my favorite proverbs occur back to back. The one says, answer a fool according to his folly. And the next one says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. And I've always found those two really uh, uh, baffling. I used to find them baffling, but I think I've come to understand them better. Because there really is a time and a place to answer the person. There really is a time and a place to say, stop. Stop your objections. Stop your emotion-based, self-centered, prideful approach to to the Christianity and the scriptures and just hear who Jesus is and what he's done for you. There's also a time to recognize they're just making up arguments. You know, it's interesting. What was our, the proverb we did read today? Where words are many, sin is not absent. I think our translation, transgressions are not absent. Where words are many, transgressions are not absent. The more we argue and debate and have our reasons and all the why we can't believe or can't follow or can't submit, it's a pretty good sign that we're the ones that are in sin. We're the ones who are at fault. There comes a point where that unbeliever, you have to move on. You call them to repent. You call them to believe. You give them the reasons. You build the case. But eventually, don't keep answering a fool according to his folly. It is the Spirit of God, and only the Spirit of God, that can step into this situation and change the heart and mind. Change our thinking so that we will humble ourselves before his word and before him. 
as you seek to minister to people. Seek to do so in a way that is biblically consistent. But always do so bathed in prayer. Because apart from God's work in their life, there is nothing you can do. For they will have these reasons and a bunch of others for why they will not believe. Let's pray. Lord, it is tempting in a sermon like this to think of the other who needs to hear this. Oh, how I wish my boss would hear this. Oh, how I wish my family member would hear this. But Lord, we are reminded that your word is for us. It is for me. And so I need to hear this. Each of us here today needs to hear this. Lord, humble us. Strip away our, our, our irrationality. Strip away our, our preconceived notions. Take away from us our, our pride and our jealousy for self. Strip away from us the, all the false justifications that we throw up in objection to your word. And renew our minds. Build our hearts. Strengthen our spirits. Let us be a people who hold to your truth because you are at work in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.